This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Hey everyone, welcome back to Behind the Knife. I just want to give a quick intro to this episode with Dr. Todd Rasmussen. He is one of the world leaders in vascular trauma, and today we talked to him about cerebrovascular trauma. Um, we have two more. One is on the endovascular management of trauma, and then we have one on Reboa coming up in the near future. Uh, you can also hear these episodes on Audible Bleeding, the vascular surgery podcast. Um, great podcast if you're interested in vascular surgery, so go please go check that out. I also just want to give a shout out for our YouTube page. We've been putting a lot of work at Behind the Knife into our YouTube page. We have a bedside procedures videos that uh, Michael Vu has been putting together, and they are fantastic videos. He's done central lines. Uh, he has an arterial line one coming out. He's on chest tubes. Um, so go check those out. Get your interns. Get your PA students. Get everyone watching those. Uh, it's a, just behind the knife on YouTube, and you'll be able to find those. And then additionally on YouTube, we also have our journal cast series uh, where um, residents throughout the country are breaking down uh, landmark papers into five minutes and have great schematics to help you understand the important takeaways for uh, landmark papers. So check out our YouTube and uh, enjoy this episode with Dr. Todd Rasmussen. Okay, and welcome back to Behind the Knife and Audible Bleeding Vascular Trauma Podcast with our guest, Dr. Todd Rasmussen. Dr. Rasmussen is a colonel in the United States Air Force, and he's a professor of surgery and associate dean of research at the Uniformed Services University of Health Science and an attending vascular surgeon at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. We're continuing our series today on vascular trauma. He is the editor of the Riches Vascular Trauma. And uh, he's been uh, gracious enough to join us and help us dive into these discussions. And today we actually have one of my co-fellows and Audible Bleeding host, Nicole Rich. Nicole, thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. All right, Dr. Rasmussen, welcome back to Audible Bleeding. Thanks a lot for having me. I'm looking forward to, uh, to the discussion. So we just want to start with some of the basics here for the tenets of managing patients with suspected cerebrovascular injuries. What are some of the principles we have to keep in mind when, we, when we're called to the trauma bay on a patient like this? Well, I think that uh, there's there's some of the key tenants that are very uh, much alike um, with the tenants of vascular injury and other anatomic locations. And then there's there certainly are some unique facets to cerebrovascular injury that are different than than other anatomic regions. So, you know, I think to to begin with, the, the key tenants that are that are similar relate to bleeding control. So that if if it is in the cervical region or the region of cerebrovascular trauma, there's active bleeding, then, then of course, that from the vascular injury, then that takes precedent that, that we have to take measures either with manual compression or other, other mechanisms to control the bleeding and resuscitate the patient. I think unlike other vascular injury patterns, cerebrovascular injury or cervical vascular injury in the cervical region also can quickly compromise the airway. And so I think, you know, those 
making sure that there's control of, of, of catastrophic bleeding, and then making sure that, that the vascular injury is not immediately compromising the airway are, are, are two tenants that are common with other vascular injury patterns, and one is unique to this area. And then I think also unique to this area is, is the, the neurostatus of the patient. Is the patient um, awake or obtunded or asleep, or is the patient awake and does the patient have signs of hemispheric stroke or ischemia? And I think depending upon the injury pattern and the, the overall status of the patient, making a, an assessment and being particularly aware of the patient's neurostatus in in these in this anatomic region is is very important. Definitely. So to highlight is in these patients we want to prevent secondary injury. So if they have a brain injury, we're going to do everything we can to keep their blood pressure, prevent hypotension, prevent hypoxia. And then like Dr. Rasmussen said, we really need to make sure we have a good neuro exam as soon and as as good of a neuro exam as as possible. So, Dr. Rasmussen, can you talk to us about what types of patients and what patterns of injury should clue us into a potential for blunt carotid injury and when we should have a high index of suspicion? Sure. I think there certainly are on the physical exam findings that will cue the provider to the high suspicion for a blunt carotid injury. Most commonly is some sort of external mark on the neck or around the thoracic outlet of, of the patient. For example, a seatbelt mark or some sort of a choke mark or, or such. So if there's external signs of injury around the, 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 the collar region or the cervical region of the patient, that certainly should cue the provider in. I think there's there are, I think, other findings on physical exam that the patient has unilateral signs that, that suggest hemispheric ischemia or a stroke. And that is uncommon, but I think that obviously if the patient's awake enough and is demonstrating demonstrating physical findings that suggest uh, hemispheric ischemia or stroke, I think that certainly is another another finding that would cue someone in to looking more closely for a blunt carotid injury. I think the, the types of injuries, mechanisms of injury, I think I mentioned the seatbelt injury. I mean, a car accident is kind of a, a typical or common injury pattern in civilian settings where the seatbelt itself has, has caused a, a blunt injury after or during a, um, a car accident. So I think that is a mechanism of injury that should also cue someone in. Yeah. And I think for the behind the knife listeners that are listening, it's really important to have this high index of suspicion because if you guys don't identify these as the trauma surgeons, as the general surgeon on call, these patients can have devastating outcomes. So really being alert and aware for these patients with complex facial fractures, these closed head injuries, and these seatbelt signs can really save lives and get the appropriate imaging to help rule in or out a uh, carotid injury. You know, you mentioned TBI or head injury, and, and I think that is, that's another obviously very common mechanism. I mean, these blunt carotid injury is pretty rare. I think as vascular surgeons or vascular trauma specialists, we tend to see them uh, more frequently because we get called. But for, for those providers who are in the emergency department or are seeing all forms of trauma and presentation, I think uh, TBI, traumatic brain injury, head injury, and, and, and then complex facial fractures, those, as you allude to, are, you know, are injury patterns where 
when you're looking both in examining the patient, but then, you know, these days in particular, when you get the CT scan, really paying attention to, you know, the cervical vasculature is, is, is particularly important. Great. And the, just a couple other injuries to keep in mind for this type of presentation as well would be cervical vertebral body fractures or transverse foramen fractures. And then also just in patients who've had severe hyperextension, rotation, or flexion injuries of the neck. Okay, great. So how do we classify and think about treating injuries with blood carotid injuries? What's our grading system and how does that dictate how we manage these? Well, I think that as we think about this, one thinks about the anatomy of the vessel wall, the arterial wall, that helps us conceptualize the, the, the degree or the severity of, of these blunt carotid injuries. They can be as simple as, a, as an intimal tear where you know, it is, uh, the intima has been raised off of the media and it creates a minor flow defect which may be prone to platelet aggregation, but it's, it's not a, a long dissection and it's, it's not a flow-limiting defect. And that is the most minor. And then, of course, the most severe on the other end of the spectrum is a blunt carotid injury that's resulted in, in, in complete thrombosis uh, of, of the artery so that it's either the vessel has been transected from the blunt injury and is thrombosed or, or the the injury is is such that the the intima is lifted up and and it has created a longer dissection that is that is now thrombosed and occluded the vessel and and then there's the the degrees of injury between those two extremes where there can be a longer dissection that has thrombus associated with it and it's visible on the cat scan or the imaging modality and or a dissection that can be flow limiting a defect that can be flow limiting it may not have thrombus in it or be a long dissection, but it, but it is uh, in itself flow limiting, meaning that it, it compromises greater than 50%, for example, of the, of the lumen of that vessel. So, you know, the, the varying degrees of severity, you know, with our imaging technologies today, mostly CTA, it is possible to pick up, you know, or it is, it, you're able to pick up or, or see the, the the different types of severity from a again from a real mild intimal defect that's not flow limiting that has no thrombus, all the way to the more obvious you know injury where there's complete thrombosis. Is there any role for ultrasound in addition to CTA if you do see some sort of intimal flap to maybe see the if there's any hemodynamic impact of it or is does CTA give you the information that you need? I think that's a really good point. I I really like ultrasound. I think uh, you alluded to this with your comment. You know, CT gives you gives one a static image. It's often quite detailed, and boy, I I really also think that CTA is. I mean, in many ways, it is the gold standard. Um, but it is a static image. Uh, in contrast, duplex ultrasound, which combines B mode, you know, uh, ultrasonography with pulsed Doppler gives one uh, a real dynamic assessment of the area of interest. I mentioned the word flow limiting. Is, is there a elevated velocity and a decrement in, 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 or a change or a difference in the velocities around that area? So I think, I think you can get a lot of information with duplex. The, of course, the limitation with duplex, and we may talk about this when we talk about the different zones of, 
of, of, of neck injury, you know, the, the limitation with duplex is it, it, you cannot see above the angle of the mandible. So you quickly kind of run out of real estate distally where you can use duplex. It's not good for distal internal carotid injuries and you cannot see, you know, proximal to the thoracic outlet. So, you know, there is a limited window in which duplex is useful, but, but in that window, I think it gives really important information. That's a great point. So going back to the grading of the injuries, Dr. Rasmussen, you described to us uh, grade one and grade two injuries, which involve intimal injuries less than 25% in grade one, uh, or grade two with a greater than 25% luminal narrowing. Can you talk about the management of grade one and two injuries? Yeah, I think um, grade one and grade two injuries most of the time are managed um, non-operatively and can be managed expectantly with use of antiplatelet therapy, potentially anticoagulation, depending upon the patient's global burden of trauma. Do they have an associated TBI? Do they have other other injuries? But if if there are if, if the patient is neurologically intact and a grade one or grade two injury is seen on imaging and the patient is able to have antiplatelet or anticoagulation therapy, then those those types of great injuries, grade one and grade two, are managed non-operatively with, I guess you'd say, medical management. If the patient changes meaning that he or she was initially neurologically normal and medical management is initiated and then the patient changes, has hemispheric symptoms indicating that your medical management is failing, then that is a situation where an intervention is is, is likely to be needed or would be indicated, if that makes sense. Dr. Epstein, I have a question. Have you ever been in a situation where you have a grade one or two injury, but a patient that you're unable to get a neuro exam on? Are we obligated to ask for things such as transcranial Doppler or EEG or, or, or something to prove that there's no injury from that? What are your thoughts on a situation like that? Great question. And, and I think um, I'll probably use this phrase multiple times in, in this discussion is it, it depends. Partly it depends on what modalities one has available to them in their institution. But I think the answer to that, if I could if I come down firm on it, is, is no, you're not obligated. I, I think it's a luxury that some places may have that if you have access to EEG or transcranial Doppler, it might be able to be used or sort of a luxury in your diagnosis. But I don't think that's really necessary. I would mostly treat them, as I said, with medical management and, and then imaging, serial imaging, both uh, of their neck and of their brain. And I think in a way, and then you mentioned it earlier, Kevin, I thought that was really important. Supportive measures like preventing secondary injury, you know, which means optimize the perfusion pressure to the brain try to avoid or lessen the likelihood of secondary insults such as hypotension, shock, and, 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 and such. So I, I don't think you're obligated to get those things. I think that things like EEG, transcranial Doppler are more in the category of a luxury if you have them, but otherwise I would manage with uh, serial imaging. 
So Dr. Rasmussen, in a patient who remains neurologically intact and you plan to medically manage and do serial imaging, what's the best timing for repeat imaging? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I think for for patients that we manage, and in my experience, we manage, we at least image them twice in the hospital while they're an inpatient. So to make sure that they're not changing or evolving, you know, in the acute phase of their injury. So, you know, if, if the typical patient is someone with a, you know, with a blunt head injury and they, they have a, a finding at the time of, of a grade one or grade two carotid injury, we get the CT at the time they're admitted to diagnose it. We follow them, you know, over the course of three or four or five days as they recover from their injury. They need another imaging study, I think, within, you know, within the first week to make sure that that grade one or grade two injury is not evolved into a, either a pseudoaneurysm, because remember, there's a, by definition, a disruption of the arterial wall. Or an extension, you know, from a grade one or grade two into something that's more, more significant. So I think the initial scan on admission, of course, and then within the first seven days to make sure they've not, that, that injury is not evolving. And then typically after that, I think, again, it depends on sort of the severity and how the patient's doing, but probably at a month after discharge from the hospital and, and then most of them will heal. Certainly grade ones will heal, hopefully grade two, but but they do need followed to the point of resolution or healing as an outpatient, usually with CT scans or CTA. Okay, great. And series of these patients have shown that 60% of them will have their injuries evolve or change in grade or severity in this period. Is the pattern that you see typically that they tend to improve over time? Well, I think the I think the grade you know the grade ones I think they do. They're, those are the ones where it's a minor or limited intimal disruption, a small intimal flap that that is not flow limiting, is not associated with thrombus or platelet aggregation or thrombus. So I think most of the grade ones do. And I think um, sure the grade twos. I think it, certainly a greater percentage of those are prone to evolve into you know a longer dissection formation of thrombus around them or into a pseudoaneurysm. And so that's the the point of of serial imaging, you know, within the first week of the injury. And then certainly, you know, another one within the first month of the injury, at best case, certainly if they begin to evolve or you see on that second CT that the image, that the, that the injury is changing, let's say it's a grade two, to your point, that you think and you see signs that it's evolving, then by all means, then that that needs then more intensive imaging. And likely, if it's evolving into something more significant, it needs an intervention. Okay. So a pseudoaneurysm is what we consider grade three. What is your approach to managing a pseudoaneurysm of the carotid? Yeah. So I think uh, the, the pseudoaneurysms of the carotid, you know, that in a way it, it depends. It's influenced certainly on the patient's neurostatus or the location of the pseudoaneurysm. And then I think the expertise of, of the team that's managing the patient. But I think that the pseudoaneurysms, all, no, no matter what size, they, they need to be treated. They require an intervention to fix them. There certainly are some patients who have a high uh, mortality. They, they, they're, they're quite ill or have a high, high injury severity score. They, they may not make it. There are some patients that one may pass 
and not fix uh, a pseudoaneurysm or grade three entry. But by and large, most do because the pseudoaneurysms will, they will not go away and they're likely to get bigger and become associated with either expansion and mass effect or bleeding or thrombus formation and stroke. So the, the ways to treat them, I think, are these days uh, primarily with endovascular techniques that include covering the pseudoaneurysm with a small covered stent, or what we'd call a stent graft, a small covered stent to, to seal uh, the, the opening of the pseudoaneurysm. You know, there are some reports and experiences using what we call a bare metal stent through which coils can be placed to thrombose the pseudoaneurysm to cause it to clot. And then the bare metal stent then, you know, maintains the integrity of the wall such that flow is, is maintained through the, through the lumen. Those both use of a stent graft or a covered stent or coiling of the pseudoaneurysm or interventional techniques or endovascular techniques that are performed most commonly through a transfemoral uh, approach, an arch aortogram, and, and then selection of the, of the affected carotid artery, and then placement of the, of the endovascular treatment. I think those these days are probably the most common. Certainly, if it is in, you know, in zone two of the neck, and we can talk about that a little bit, and it's amenable to an operation, there's another indication for an operation in that area, then, then certainly open repair of the pseudoaneurysm can also be undertaken. But I think more commonly these days for grade two injuries, they're managed with an endovascular technique. In your book, it's mentioned that considering waiting seven days to decrease neuroevents, what's the thought behind this? I think that it depends on the patient. There are some patients who just are in no shape to undergo an intervention such as this in the acute, in the acute setting, the first two or three days. And, and certainly in those patients, waiting is, is just you don't have a choice. You need to wait. I think if the patients, you know, are awake, let's say they're awake and otherwise normal, you know, in those patients, if, they're, if, if it's a pseudoaneurysm, the patient's awake, and able to be examined, I, I often don't wait seven days. I think the waiting period probably more pertains to patients with polytrauma, maybe an associated TBI and, and, uh, and a more complex, complex course. I think if it's more uh, cut and dried, the patient's awake, able to be examined, they're out of the unit, then I, I don't wait uh, necessarily seven days. Got it. So for the grade four injuries, the occlusions we just do medical management for these patients if they're already occluded. Can you just talk to us briefly about how you decide on medical management, whether we're using antiplatelets or dual antiplatelets or anticoagulation? How do you go about this? Yeah. So this is really an area where, you know, we don't have a lot of uh, good, we don't have really any good data. We have really good clinical experiences by uh, a lot of uh, expert groups but we don't have a lot of prospective data or level one data that guides our management in these cases. And so I think patients with occluded, let's say they have a blunt uh, carotid and it's occluded, grade four injury, patients who do not have associated injuries or conditions that preclude the use of anticoagulation, then I will use uh, anticoagulation. We'll, we'll give them intravenous heparin and monitor them with repeat imaging 
and obviously monitor them to make sure they're not over anticoagulated. In, and, and that tends to be the exception because many of these patients have polytrauma. So they have an associated TBI or other body regions that have been severely injured so that anticoagulation is not an option. And in those cases, we are really left with using an antiplatelet like clopidogrel or aspirin. And in those cases, I'll often use both dual antiplatelet therapy, clopidogrel and aspirin. And these are in patients who cannot receive full anticoagulation because of other injuries. One point there, I think if, if one's going to use anticoagulation, and I think this group you know, Kevin, you and Nicole are, and those of us who get called frequently for bleeding complications are sensitive to this. But in these, these patients, we're going to use anticoagulation on for a blunt grade four uh, blunt carotid injury. I really try to avoid protocol based bolusing of anticoagulation. I think our internal medicine friends and often our intensivists get into these protocols where they'll use large boluses of heparin as if the patient's being treated for a PE. And I think that I try to avoid that um, because I, in my experience, that leads to bleeding complications either in the brain, the neck, or, or somewhere else in these injured patients. So I typically will, when I start anticoagulation on these patients, start pretty slow with a goal PTT of 50 to 70. And in the first 24 hours, I often will say 50 is better than 70 because these patients with this type of trauma are just prone to bleed. And then work up slowly to therapeutic anticoagulation without boluses. And, and again, these are patients that, that use the anticoagulation and that don't have, uh, they, they shouldn't have other major injuries. So then they get transitioned to a, an oral anticoagulant for 30 to 90 days. That's a really good point. Okay, great. So why don't we move on to discuss blunt vertebral artery injuries? Dr. Rasmussen, when you're assessing a patient's imaging who is presenting with a trauma and a blunt vertebral artery injury, what are the kind of things that you look for in terms of the dominance of the vertebral and how that affects your management? Yeah, good point. And you've, um, you've kindly pointed me in the right direction. I think it depends upon, you know, one of the main things is, well, first of all, you know, starting with a physical exam and, and as we've mentioned, you know, how, how is the patient? When you first assess them, do they have, you know, signs of bleeding in the neck, airway compromise, et cetera? Uh, but then, you know, quickly with these patients, and to your point, you get to the imaging. And, and I think one of the key things is it, which vertebral? Is it the dominant vertebral artery that is affected or is it the diminutive vertebral? Or, or maybe you can't tell, but I think that is important. And then I think it's similar in some ways to the carotid injuries. It's the severity of that vertebral injury, both its location, anatomically, which of the vertebral segments, and then, you know, what is the what is the severity of the injury? Is it a mild grade one intimal flap that sort of seems non-flow limiting, or is it a full full-blown occlusion of the vertebral? And then lastly, is it associated with a basilar artery defect or posterior circulation stroke? Those are sort of the things that I try to go through in my mind as I look at the imaging. You know, one thing that's important to mention, and we were just talking about this with one of our residents or trainees last week, we did a first rib resection and talked about the severity of, of impact uh, that it 
takes to make these sorts of injuries, you know, I think what I would say is, yes, be focused on the vertebral artery or in the case of the carotid, be focused on the carotid, but also be aware that in, oftentimes these cases can be associated with other torso vascular injuries, blunt aortic injuries and such. So, you know, like, like we always uh, try to do ourselves or teach, you know, don't get tunnel vision with these patients, look at their imaging uh, with regards to the vertebral, but also be aware that they often have other injuries that you need to open the aperture to see. That's great. From my experience, most of these injuries of the vertebrals are managed uh, non-operatively or occasionally with embolization, maybe by neuro-IR, unless there's maybe a, a pseudoaneurysm. And, and, and per your book, 90% of these stenotic lesions will resolve. Is that the experience that you have too uh, with these? Yes. And I think the, you know, this, they fall into a similar management pattern as the blunt carotid injuries. Maybe not quite the same because their natural history is a little different, but but I think the, you know, as far as serial imaging management with either expectant medical management for 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 those that are that are less severe, and then endovascular management with those that are more severe, I think, you know, in a way they do fall into a similar uh, management pattern. And yes, the majority of those that that are low grade do resolve or or become asymptomatic over the long period, meaning they may, the, the, the vertebral may, th may, if it's thrombosed, I mean, oftentimes that does not result in a stroke. It just depends, you know, but many of the smaller injuries certainly do resolve over time. And, and that can be seen with the serial imaging uh, approach that we've already talked about. So, Dr. Rasmussen, Kevin mentioned that a lot of these vertebral injuries, especially if they're kind of high up in the neck or the skull base, are managed by neuro-IR or conservatively. But if you need to expose the proximal vertebral artery in the neck, what's your approach for that surgically? Right. So, that's a, that is exposed through a supraclavicular incision. And for those who have looked at up or performed a carotid subclavian bypass, for example, or the, the exposure of the subclavian artery, most, mostly that exposure, or most commonly that supraclavicular uh, incision is, is described for exposure of the, of, the, of the subclavian artery. But through that same supraclavicular exposure, you know, the vertebral artery can be found a little bit more proximal on the subclavian uh, artery. So that's, that's sort of the, that's the, that's the incision or approach. And, you know, it depends upon what one is operating for. If it's, if it's for, for bleeding and the intent is to, to control bleeding or ligate it, that's actually most commonly the case. I mean, the, is, is that, you know, that exposure is then used because it's a hematoma and, and there's, there's bleeding you know, then the intent is to expose the, the vertebral as it comes off of the, the subclavian and, and to ligate it. It's rare that one would be repairing or trying to restore flow in the setting of trauma to the vertebral artery, you know, through that incision. We don't really typically do vertebral reconstructions for trauma. Typically, if you're doing it through an open operation, it's, it's really to control bleeding and, and probably going to end up ligating it just because of Reimplanting the vertebral, you know, on the common carotid or doing some sort of vertebral reconstruction is just not well suited for a, 
for the trauma situation, if that makes sense. Yeah. And one quick thing before we move on, I just wanted to touch on a paragraph that I took from your book that I think is really important because we don't do vertebral artery exposures much. I've only really done one in fellowship. I've done a lot of carotid subclavians where I see it, but an actual exposure of the vertebral. But in your book, it mentions you go in between the two heads of the SCM, you open up the carotid sheath and you retract the carotid immediately. And this will, you, then you'll be able to identify, this is a critical structure of the vertebral vein, um, which directly posterior, which is directly posterior to the carotid. And this vertebral vein is sort of the landmark that helps you identify the vertebral artery and the proximal subclavian artery. And the one of these that I've done, that was exactly the anatomic exposure that, that we saw. Yeah, good point. We didn't talk, I didn't talk about the anatomy or the, the specific anatomical aspects. That's exactly right. I mean, I think one of the things, a couple of things that are useful in addition to, to the vertebral vein, I think that, I think that identifying the sternal head and the clavicular head of the sternocleidomastoid, you know, and trying to find it really in a lot of ways, you can go between those two heads of the sternocleidomastoid. And it's in that sort of that groove there where one can, and, and oftentimes that's just a, I mean, it is, there's an open plane there between the, the sternal head and the clavicular head. Really, the window there leads you then to that area where posteriorly there will be the, the vertebral artery will come off the subclavian. You know, you can feel the carotid and it's just beyond, it's just beyond the takeoff, at least on the right, it's just beyond the takeoff of the carotid artery. So, Dr. Asmussen, I think we're going to dive now into penetrating carotid trauma and start with sort of the basics, diving into the, the zones of the neck and some of the things you take into consideration with each of these zones of the neck as far as getting control. Right. So, the zones of the neck that have been used to help us conceptualize penetrating injury mostly really apply to the anterior portion of the neck, the anterior triangle of the neck. Zone one is is the first and, and the, the most proximal zone, and it's really defined by the sternal notch to the cricoid cartilage. So it's a tight or narrow zone that really involves the thoracic outlet. Zone two is the cricoid cartilage to the angle of the mandible, which is the largest of the, of the three zones in the neck, the anterior neck. And then zone three is from the angle of the mandible to the base of the skull. Like zone one, zone three is pretty tight. There's not a lot of space there. And those zones, I think, are useful and that have been described. There was an original paper led by Dr. Roon, R-O-O-N, A.J. Roon, in the Journal of Trauma in 1979 that first described those zones. It was called Evaluation and Treatment of Penetrating Cervical Injuries. And, and those zones, I think, are really useful just to help us conceptualize and to, to try to manage uh, different forms of penetrating injury or different areas of penetrating injury. So those are the zones. I think that teaching, at least over the years, has been that penetrating injuries to zone one and zone three largely require imaging at the outset and maybe either non-operative repair or at least imaging first because they're very difficult areas to expose. Penetrating injuries to zone two Traditionally, the teaching has been that those are all managed with an open operation and exploration of the neck. And then for zone three, much like zone one, we depend on imaging and angiography for treatment of these injuries. I kind of want to dive straight into this and discuss how do we manage carotid injuries. So we're, we're going to just pitch some scenarios at you and we, we can discuss some of the nuances of it. If you have a penetrating carotid injury, 
zone two and the patient is neurointact, this is kind of the most straightforward situation. If they're neurologically intact, how do we determine whether or not you're going to repair the carotid injury? Well, I think probably the case-based scenarios are probably best because, as I mentioned, the zones are there to provide some conceptualization, help us to categorize our management. But the management of any given case is, is often individualized. So in this particular case, yes. I mean, whether or not they're neurologically intact certainly matters. I think with penetrating zone two injury, I would still operate on that. I think that paradigm is changing with modern imaging technologies, CTA mostly, and clinical experience. But I think that the teaching is in, in the case that you presented, uh, penetrating zone two wound with a carotid injury, then that patient would be operated on with an open operation. The neurodeficit portion of it, historically, there was concerns over if you repair this carotid injury that you could create intracranial hemorrhage. So say you have a patient that comes in with a zone two injury on the right neck with left-sided neurosymptoms. Does the neurostatus play into it or do you repair the carotid? Yeah, I think that in these days, you know, as I mentioned or alluded to, we, we have the benefit of CT imaging. So the paradigm of the, I mentioned the AJ Rune paper from 1979 that really set up the these zones. That was in an era where we did not have, and for many decades after that, we didn't really have the benefit of routine, high quality contrast CT imaging. Today we're operating in this new era with routine, high quality contrast CT scans. So. I think in your case, if the injury has a CT scan, which it's likely to have these days, unless the, unless the injury was associated with bleeding and, and the patient was just taken immediately to the OR, you're going to have a, a CT image. If the CT image shows a grade one type of injury, you almost extrapolate and use the, uh, you know, the, the blunt categorization, or the blunt categories. If it's zone one, then I suppose... You may not choose to operate on those, but I think penetrating wounds, I would, I would operate on them because I think they're going to evolve. And the other thing about exploring zone two of the neck is that you can explore for other aerodigestive injuries. That's the other dictum or part of this is to make sure that there's not an injury to the, to the airway or to the esophagus as you perform the zone two neck exploration. So, you know, I think that they get an exploration. You see the carotid and you explore and you see the injury and, and then you manage it depending upon what the injury looks like at the time of open exploration. I think it would be hard for, for me to sit on uh, a penetrating zone two wound that has a parotid injury. I, I, it's potentially described, but I think there's a couple of reasons that I would err on the side of, of operating on that. Yeah. And I think historically, they talked about the intracranial hemorrhage. So if, if you had a very beat up looking carotid artery or maybe near thrombose, that they would leave it because they're afraid of reperfusing the brain causing intracranial hemorrhage. But it seems like the consensus now, at least from your book and the EAST guidelines, is to repair these carotid injuries um, because the mortality and final neurostatus has been shown to be better in these patients, even if they started with a neurodeficit. Yeah. And I think that for those of us who perform carotid endarterectomy routinely, we are familiar with trying to mitigate 
hyperperfusion syndrome or reperfusion syndrome. And, and I think that is part of the, the management. There's the technical management of the injury, and then there's the communication with anesthesia to try to lower the blood pressure and the overall perfusion pressure in these patients after you repair the carotid. It's not unlike communicating with anesthesia about resuscitation, right? We, we need to communicate with anesthesia, in this case, to mitigate hyperperfusion or reperfusion and, and worsening of a brain injury, we need to communicate with anesthesia as well as do a good job of fixing the, the injury. That is a great point. What about in a situation where you have a patient who has a large infarct on the same side as a carotid injury? What is your approach in that situation? Yeah, so I think, you know, in, in, it depends upon the injury. If this is a penetrating zone two wound, in nearly all instances, you're going to explore it because it's a zone two neck injury. I would explore all of these. I still sort of fall back on exploring all penetrating zone two injuries. And in that case, then you're going to be in the neck anyway. You're going to see the injury to the carotid. And I guess your question, Nicole, is in the setting of an infarct, would you then repair the carotid? I mean, your options are either to repair it, do nothing to it, or, or, or ligate it. And I guess as a vascular surgeon, I would repair it. I think observing it while you're there, looking at it, is then you risk it evolving into a pseudoaneurysm and you having to reoperate on it days or weeks later as, it, as the small injury has evolved. And I, I think, you know, the, the question of, well, if he's already, if the patient already has an infarct, would you ligate it? I think that that's just not something that as a vascular surgeon that, that I would pursue. I think I would try to repair the injury, reperfuse the hemisphere, acknowledge that, yes, you could make things worse with reperfusion, but you also may take a penumbra that was ischemic and you may reperfuse it and, and push the penumbra in, in a positive direction. So, you know, there's not a lot of data in, in this area. And I mentioned the word harrowing. You know, th- these are the most challenging of, of injury scenarios for sure. Definitely. Yeah, there's no easy answers there. I mean, what do you think? You, you know, Nicole, what do you guys think and what's your experience? I mean, I... I'm interested also in, in what you guys think about that case. I have one experience uh, with this. It was in residency. We had a, a person that was sleeping and a uh, pressure washer guy came up to him and asked him to move. He refused to move and they got in a fight and the, got the pressure washer straight to the neck, tore open his carotid. They came into the ER holding pressure on his neck and huge hemiparesis on the contralateral side. In that case, we did repair the carotid, and he did have a dense hemiparesis after the case. Whether ligating would have helped or not, it, you know, we don't know. But that, that's, my, that's my one experience. Nicole, what do you think? I actually haven't seen a situation like this, but it's definitely a tough, it's a tough situation. I think if you have an injury that's going to cause potential for bleeding or a pseudoaneurysm, and the vessel is patent, then my inclination would be to repair it. If you have like an occlusion of the artery when you explore it, you know, say you try to do a thrombectomy and you're not getting any retrograde bleeding, that might be a situation where I'd consider ligating it. But I think these are tough calls. I think you're, I think you're spot on. And I think as surgeons, you know, sometimes what comes to mind is, well, don't overthink it. You're a vascular surgeon. You've explored 
uh, a vascular injury, there's a hole in the artery or disrupted artery, do what we do, which is fix it. And again, I, I don't mean to be overly simplistic. I'm not trying to be sarcastic, but I, I think we get to that point where, you know, you're going to have to fix it. It'd be very difficult to just not do anything. And I think in the case that you described, Kevin, I think that's important. You do need to know going into these that the outcome's going to be likely to be stroke. You know, whether you make the stroke better or worse, you're not really going to know by fixing the artery. And so the outcome is going to be pretty bad either way. I think that's important for family and, and of the patients and for the care team to recognize these situations. But to me, fixing it is, unless, Nicole, you bring up a good point, if the carotid's occluded, then yeah, I think then that is a time when I would ligate it. And I think this is where we fall back on our experience with carotid endorectomy and managing you know, a string sign that we thought was there from a carotid occlusive disease, and you explored the string sign. And by the way, the carotid was occluded. In those cases, in a setting of a carotid endorectomy, we actually likely ligate it. And so I think we fall back on some of the similar principles that we pursue when we're fixing age-related carotid disease. Definitely. And for completeness sake, there's another large blood vessel in the neck that we encounter injuries to. What is your thought on internal jugular injuries? Can you ligate one, two, or what are your thoughts? I think one can certainly ligate these, I think, and not have consequential effects in in most patients. The internal jugular veins that I have repaired have been in the situation of uh, significant TBI. So a patient has Bleeding in the neck, you explore, explore the, the neck, and the patient also has a you know, penetrating wound to the head and intracranial hypertension and you know, needed a decompressive craniectomy or something. In those cases, I have repaired the internal jugular vein to maintain venous outflow of that side of the brain. You know, I'm never sure whether or not that is necessary. But, you know, I think it, it makes sense to me. I think in one case, I remember uh, before I repaired the internal jugular vein, we transduced a venous pressure towards the cranial side and, and the venous pressure was 40 or 50 millimeters of mercury. And there was a gradient, right? Eight millimeters of mercury on the, on the cardiac side or the proximal or central side. So to me, if there's a gradient and the patient's got a TBI, I think fixing it is at least reasonable. But most of the time, you can ligate the internal jugular, and, and there's enough collateral venous drainage that the patients will do fine. Okay, so going back to repair of the carotid artery in these trauma situations, so we fall back on the standard steps that we use in other types of vascular surgery, the first thing being getting proximal and distal control. And then, Dr. Rasmussen, can you speak to us about heparinization and, and how you manage that in the trauma setting? Yeah, I think this is um, in this injury pattern more than more than most or more than any other arterial injury pattern. You you have to use heparin in these cases. In some injury patterns, you kind of have to be ready for a wild ride because because <laughs> you explore the neck for bleeding. In a, and if the patient has polytrauma, there's bleeding elsewhere. And now you're going to fix the carotid artery in some manner. You're going to either uh, put in a shunt or or just repair it primarily, or you're going to have to, if you're going to clamp the carotid artery, in my experience, you're going to need to use heparin. And so what I mean by a wild ride is, you know, you're, you explore the patient for bleeding, they're already bleeding, 
And now what do you do? You give more heparin. The, the key there is to try to fix the carotid as, you know, as quickly as you can, try to manage the, the other areas of bleeding while the patient's heparinized, and then you know, bring them off of heparin after the carotid is repaired. I think unlike, for example, I think there's extremity arterial injuries that can sometimes be managed without heparin. But I think uh, if you're going to go to the trouble of the technical challenge of fixing a traumatic carotid injury, I think in nearly every case, you, you got to give systemic heparin. So, you know, you have proximal and distal control now, the patient's heparinized. How do you decide whether to use a shunt or not? And what type of shunt do you use? Once you've done that, the tenants are similar to other arterial injuries. You need to identify the injury and then remove the burden of thrombus. Often that can be done with flushing, you know, back bleeding of the internal carotid or back bleeding and fore bleeding, and then passage of a thrombectomy catheter. Obviously, passing a thrombectomy catheter of the internal carotid needs to be done very carefully. It's usually a two or three Fogarty catheter and just a centimeter or two, you really don't want to be putting a, a Fogarty catheter distal into the internal carotid more than a centimeter or two. Hopefully, you can rely on back bleeding from that internal, can quote unquote blow out any thrombus that's there. Same with the, the proximal, but do beware that you need to get rid of the thrombus burden uh, in those arteries before you fix them. Whether or not to use a shunt, I mean, I think. In most cases of trauma, I do not use a shunt because it adds just another level of complexity to a case that's already complex. And if I were to use a shunt, I would use either an Argyle shunt or a short sunt shunt, S-U-N-D-T, or the Argyle shunts. I think it's reasonable to do that. Let's say you've got a long segment loss of the carotid artery. You're going to need to do an interposition graft, let's say. And in that case, you know, you're going to have to go harvest vein. You know, in those cases, I suppose, sure, it's it's reasonable in those cases to put in a shunt to reperfuse that hemisphere of the brain while the conduit is is harvested or prepared. So certainly there are times when I have used a shunt in the setting of trauma, but I I also try to keep a mind to, in the case of carotid trauma, to try to keep it as simple as possible. Keep in mind that the internal carotid can also be transposed over onto the external carotid artery as a transposition, you know, in some cases, depending upon the precise location of the injury, so that, you know, you don't need an interposition graft. And in those cases, you know, you would not use a shunt either. So be mindful to use the shunt, be ready, sort of think about it. But also, if you find that fixing it sets up pretty quickly, either with an interposition graft or transposing the internal onto the external, if that sets up pretty quickly. I do not think you should feel obligated to use a shunt in the setting of trauma. Okay, great. So the options for repair are dictated somewhat by the injury and the size of the injury. You mentioned harvesting vein. I think that's a good point, especially in cases where you're exploring the neck and there's also an aerodigestive injury. In order to avoid putting prosthetic in, vein option is nice. What if you have a small injury and you're just planning to do a patch? What, what do you use for the patch? So for the patch, I would either use Dacron or bovine pericardium. And I think, you know, you raise a really good point there that I think if it's clearly a contaminated wound, a penetrating wound where 
you know, whether it's because there's an injury to the esophagus or the airway or it's a shotgun wound. And so there's a large soft tissue injury or a fragment wound that's really contaminated. Then I think in those cases, yes, I think efforts to harvest vein, saphenous vein probably are advised. I will say that if it's the opposite of that, if it's sort of a simple penetrating wound, there's no evidence, at least overt evidence of aerodigestive injury. Uh, there's no really other contamination. Let's say it's a stab wound, you know, and it's not a, a big soft tissue wound. I'll quickly also use Dacron or PTFE in a position graft and not use vein. As I mentioned before, I think, you know, you, you try to be mindful of keeping these operations as, as expeditious as possible. You try to move them along. And in the case where there's not a lot of contamination or any contamination, I also will then not use vein. You know, I think using a Dacron interposition graft or, or PTFE in this large a vessel, at least common carotid, is, is, uh, is fine. Okay, great. And I think one important point also to mention is that you need to debride back any devitalized tissue. So, you know, if there's a defect in the artery, but the tissue around it is, is pretty ratty, you know, you may have to actually debride it back and, and make the defect larger initially before you repair it. Really good point. Yeah, yes, ma'am. And the same with a shunt. That's why, you know, I said be ready to use a shunt. Certainly in some situations you need to use a shunt, but, you know, using the shunt, you can also either create an injury or cause you to need to debride the artery back a little further. So really good point. So Dr. Rasmussen, one point that I picked up from reading your chapter here is that we're talking about back bleeding from the internal carotid. And it made the point of if back bleeding is restored, uh, you should perform an interop angiogram to document complete evacuation of distal thrombus. Can you just speak to this? Yeah, I think a completion study is, is definitely something to consider or to perform. I think we've used the phrase during our discussion here this afternoon, a luxury. You know, there's some of these things that you have the luxury to do. You know, in some cases of trauma, you, you may not have the luxury to perform an on-the-table arteriogram. So in those cases, I would use duplex. If you have duplex or even use the duplex function of the ultrasound that you have in the OR to show flow, you know, and then the, the most simple thing is a continuous wave Doppler. And so some form of assessment of your repair certainly is, is, is indicated. The complexity of that completion exam depends on what capabilities you have and, and how the patient's doing. So certainly in an ideal situation, you're fully outfitted. You've got experienced colleague or partner or fellow with you and, you know, the patient is on the right imaging table and you can do a completion arteriogram, then absolutely, I would put a 18-gauge uh, butterfly in the common carotid artery, make sure it's de-aired so that you don't inject air and, and shoot a completion arteriogram, both the repair and the distal internal carotid to assure that there's no thrombus. In, in situations where you're not that outfitted and you don't have that luxury, then using a duplex ultrasound, I think, is is fine. And in those cases, you don't have duplex or the patient's just has enough injuries and is in a, a complicated enough situation using a continuous wave Doppler and, and, and just finishing up is also, in some cases, the way it has to go. I'm curious, Dr. Rasmussen, do you use a completion imaging study for elective carotid repairs, like elective carotid endarterectomies? 
At this point, yeah, we use ultrasound. We use duplex ultrasound, but not arteriography. I mean, I, I think that the arteriography point is, is useful. I, I, I appreciate that. And I think for those who have done that before and are used to doing it, it's reasonable. The, the counter to that would be, well, let's say you see a little bit of thrombus in the distal internal beyond your repair. What are you going to do about it? So it, it's not to make light of or diminish the need for confirming a technically adequate or perfect repair. But I think to some of my previous comments, you know, we as surgeons, I think, try to strike this balance between being perfect uh, and then spending too much time overthinking it. And carotid completion angiography in the setting of trauma may just not be uh, feasible in a lot of cases where people may not have the experience in doing it. Right. Okay. So what if there's a concomitant tracheal or esophageal injury? Do you do anything to buttress your arterial repair? Well, I mean, I think we we didn't mention the word, uh, we didn't mention drains. So, you know, in all of these cases where we've explored a zone two uh, penetrating neck injury, those patients are all drained with, you know, for me, a seven millimeter flat JP drain or, or maybe more. I guess that's a great question. I don't know that there's a situation where I really buttressed or done used any adjuncts to cover my repair. The vascularity of the neck is good, if not great. And I think that helps. I think if you've drained the wound, that is also sort of a mitigating step. And I'm not sure that I have buttressed or done anything more than that to protect the arterial repair. And maybe it's because I've not had any that have had overt esophageal injury. They may be, you know, micro injury or something like that. Small. Why? What do you think, Nicole? I've heard of using a muscle flap to separate the esophageal injury from the arterial injury. But I'm not sure if that's always necessary. And I do like the idea of the drain because that would prevent any collection from building up there that could compromise your arterial repair. I think that those are both good points. I think the drain is, in my mind, the drain's a must. Even if you explore the zone two, you see no, because remember, many of the esophageal injuries you're just not going to see. And honestly, I don't know that any of us are familiar enough with exposing the esophagus through uh, that wound. We we may sort of see the esophagus and do the best we can, but many of the esophageal injuries will be pretty small or we may not see them. So I think that the drain is a must in these injuries, at least one. And a muscle flap, I guess, is something to consider if there's gross contamination, you know, either spillage from esophageal wound or, or just gross contamination of the wound. I've just not done that in my practice. Well, Dr. Rasmussen, once again, we've covered a lot of topics in, in one session, and we really appreciate your expertise and insight uh, into this complicated topic. Well, it's a um, pleasure to to have the discussion with you this afternoon, and, and I hope that it's useful to, to you and to your listeners. I know it's been useful for me to uh, run through a lot of these scenarios uh, with you this afternoon, so thanks for the opportunity. And I think we still have at least one more uh, topic to cover uh, in the future, endovascular slash Reboa management of trauma, if, if you're up for it. Sure thing. Happy to, uh, happy to visit with you guys anytime. Great. Thank you again. Until next time, dominate the day. 